E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ray Corson of Elise Winery in Napa Valley, as well as Jacob Franklin and Purple Heart. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So you actually grew up on a dairy farm. I grew up on a dairy farm in Newton, New Jersey, up in the northwest corner of Sussex County. And, uh, you know, my joke is I outgrew my need for milk, so it was time to get off the farm. You know, got drafted in the Army, went to Vietnam, came home, fooled around in Africa for a couple of years, and decided it was time to go back to school. So I'm a graduate of UMass, and my degree is in palmology. So I had planned on having an orchard. Because we had a couple orchards up the street from our dairy farm, and they didn't work near as hard as I worked. So I looked at that, and I go, well, I like apples, so it wouldn't be a bad idea. And then getting myself through college, I waited tables, tended bar, got the wine bug. I came out to California in 80, was it 78? Ended up going back to Boston and worked at a great wine shop, Bauer Wine Shop on Newberry Street. And uh, he buried the hook on me. On, what was it? it? was 79. For Christmas Eve, he opened a 47 Margot. And on New Year's Eve, he opened up a 47 De Kemp. And I was shocked. It was all over at that time. You know, I'm a big guy and I can drink. And I was giddy drinking these wines. And, uh, you know, I never looked back since. And so I got over the uncomfortable part of not knowing enough of the wine business. And then uh, told my fiance one day, I said, listen, I want to move to California. I want to make wine. So my father-in-law's secretary had a nephew who he and his wife had a winery. It was Jeffrey Patterson and Ellie Davis from Mount Eden. So they agreed to let me work there. So that was my first job in the business, up there picking grapes, digging ditches, and washing boxes. I was the low man on the totem pole. Was that the early 80s? That was 83. It was my first harvest. And um, at the end of harvest, Jeffrey said to me, and he's a great guy, um, hey, you're the last one hired. You're the first guy let go. And I said, okay, so where should I go? He goes, you should go to Napa Valley. So we took a little time and figured it out and then moved to Napa Valley right after Thanksgiving of 83. And we got a job at running a bed and breakfast. And I put a vineyard in, tore the old vineyard out, put a new vineyard in. 
and then went to work for Tanella Vineyard Management Company. I got to work with Ray Tanella's father, Bocci. And Bocci at the time was 78 years old. And he spent an hour with me every morning explaining why. And then another six hours I spent with the Mexican guys. And they showed me how. So I learned a lot of it that way. And then they said, we'll bring you back at harvest if you want, but you should find something else. So I got a job in the tasting room at Whitehall Lane and turned their business around. I was a bartender, so I knew how to do that stuff. And eventually I started working in the back doing sales for them. And then in 86, I became the assistant winemaker. And then 87, I became the winemaker. That's during the Finkelstein era? Yeah, Art Finkelstein, his wife, Bunny, Alan, and Charlene Steen. Between them and Jeffrey and Ellie, they're what really gave me my start in the business. So that must have been interesting to see both vineyard and tasting room, because they're such right. different sides of the thing. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to be a small winery owner, you better know how to do it all. You know, I'm not a bookkeeper, but uh, pretty much the rest of the stuff I do. And, you know, it's not so bad, although I am training my son to take my place. He's got to do something. But Art Finkelstein, what was he like? Art taught himself wine. He took a home winemaking class, and he was a pretty good cook. And he kind of taught me why he blends. And, you know, that's the, the greatest thing that I learned was how to blend. I, I'm very basic in my winemaking skills. I look at winemaking as simply cooking without a flame. And it's a matter of buying good ingredients. And then it's simplicity of what's going on. But I have a pretty good palate for putting things together. Those Whitehall Lane wines, especially back then, were a little more structured, right? Well, you know, it was before the big alcohol time. And so, you know, we fought to keep those alcohols down by picking earlier. And so we've learned more and more about this. And I think I see a change coming. A lot of the newer Salmoniers are pushing it. I think it's a great idea. I think the big wines, they're really good tasting wines. I'm more interested in food wines than I am tasting wines. They were pretty well known for Merlot, right? We made some great Merlot. We made some great Cabernet there. Our whites were on the weaker side. I did some Cabernet Franc in 88, 89, and 90. It's probably going to outlive the Cab and the Merlot. I do love Cab Franc. But yeah, red was our strength. I mean, it's pretty amazing in that era that, don't take this the wrong way, that a guy could just move to Napa, show interest in some facility for getting along with people, both customers and people in the winery, and then get an assistant winemaking job. Because you didn't have a degree in... Right. Well, let's see. I took a home winemaking class uh, from John Paul from Cameron Winery, which was very interesting. I took a viticulture class. Uh, The best class I took was a one-day seminar on bad wine down at the wine lab in Napa. And my thought is, if you know bad wine, then you really know good wine. That, and I took a seminar, a three-day seminar at Davis. And that's it. But I, you know, I got to do everything. I ran the bottling line. You know, you name it in the winery and I did it. And I think that's really important for winemakers where I don't know if enough young winemakers get that kind of experience anymore. They have a Davis degree or a San Luis or Fresno degree. And I think they come in seeing themselves as analogist winemakers. And it takes more than that to me. So you're there in the 80s, and that's actually physically close to, like, BV. And so did right. you see, like, 
guys like Chelichev running around? Chelichev was uh, working with Coppola at the time, and I lived on Nibom Lane. So we used to see him a lot. And he was still around. Joe Heights was around. All that old school, uh, Walter Shug. We had an opportunity to listen to these guys. You know, we were young guys, and we thought we knew everything. But when you finally calm down and listen to what these guys are telling you, it's pretty amazing. So Walter Shug had been at Phelps for a while. He was their original winemaker. And we talked at length about why the old wines at Phelps were 12.5, 12.9 alcohol. And it's because they wouldn't ripen. They were old. They were diseased. Maybe not the right rootstock, the right budwood. And so they fought for ripeness, which they've always done in Bordeaux. And then, as in more recent years, we start switching to faster maturing clones. And that's not what we need in Napa Valley. We can, you know, we get a year like 11, we go, geez, we wish we would have had a faster ripening clone. But as a general thing, no, we want something a little slower. Because to me, the whole deal is physiological ripeness. It's not sugar. And that takes time. Where did your palate start to go in the 80s? I mean, what were you drinking? Well, you know, I grew up back east and I lived in Boston and stuff like that. So I was a French wine drinker, French, Italian, a little bit, some Spanish, uh, mainly French. I'm a Rhone guy at heart. I love Bordeaux. I love Burgundy. But give me a Rhone wine. So a lot of your wines actually have French names. Right. There's some French in my family background. There's also Dutch and German and English and probably a little Irish in the woodpile someplace. But yeah, and I was always drawn to that. Truthfully, back in Boston at that time, there weren't that many great American wines. I remember uh, Silver Oak coming in in the mid to late 70s, and everybody thought there was a new sliced bread in town. Um, You know, and they made a good wine at that time. The thing that everybody really missed was how great the old Inglenook Cask Limiteds were and the old BV Latours and all the other small batches that were in California that nobody ever heard of. What was going on in Napa in the mid-'80s? Well, you know, a lot of what was going on in the mid-'80s is everybody's just trying to find themselves. You know, you had a big group from Stanford that came up, Jack Davies, uh, Trefeffins. There were a number of other people. The Duckhorns opened up. And I think we were really, we were getting the idea, but we were all trying to develop our style. And, you know, I, I think it, get, it got a little bit convoluted because nobody exactly knew where they wanted to go and kept experimenting and experimenting. And then really in the late 80s with phylloxera, everybody had to wake up and take a look. And I think that's when a lot of things changed. It seems like it. By 92, Cabernet was really king. When I was living at the Marasoli house, the first year was 1985. You still had Chenin Blanc planted on the Rutherford bench. And uh, I said, Gary, what's with this? And he goes, well, I was getting more money for Chenin Blanc than I was for Cabernet. And so he replanted to Cabernet. And then we started buying his Cabernet in uh, 1990 at Whitehall Lane. Working for Whitehall Lane, you must have seen a lot of different vineyard sources. We did. We really did. You know, I got to know guys like Randy Dunn and Bill Smith and stuff. And so as we started our own label in 87 for Elise, in 91, Randy Dunn calls me up and he goes, hey, I just bought the Park Muscadine Ranch and it doesn't have a lot as in, but do you want it? I go, yeah, I'll take it. So we bought grapes from him and I think it was through 96 or 97. And then he kept pulling blocks out. And so, you know, he owns it, so he gets it. He was great to me also. Good guy. 
So we started looking around for different things. In 1990, a year ahead, I came up with this idea of making a red blend. And we found a vineyard with 13 different varietals in it, and I don't even know what they all were. And that was the beginning of Nero Misto. They pulled out the vineyard and planted houses, so we lost that one. So we started looking around, and we were at a time where most people didn't want Zinfandel. It faded, from my opinion, from being too high alcohol in the late 70s, and everybody kind of backed away from it. My ex-wife's family were very good friends with Dave Benyon from Ridge. So that was really my experience with Zinfandel, trying these uh, Zinfandels that they had cellared and stuff like that. Uh, actually, my ex-wife and her siblings all swam in a tank of fermenting Zinfandel because their screening system broke and they couldn't get the cap to go down. So the kids got in with fans and everything like that and clothes on. But we're punching down the cap. I believe it was the Occidental Vineyard from 1970. I have that dream sometimes, like I'm swimming in must, you know. <laughs> yeah, I have one, I'm sinking in must. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet you have that every harvest. Yeah. Um, but Ridge had run Park Muscadine for a while, so it was kind of a connection because you knew the Ridge wines. And right. You started working with that fruit through Randy Dunn when he purchased it. Right. We were very fortunate where we didn't have a lot of money, but we paid our bills. And so growers were attracted to us who had Zinfandel. The Marasoli, they purchased Zieger Vineyard, and that was another mixed black vineyard. And Gary goes, well, do you want it? I go, yeah, I want them. And uh, so we started working with that, and eventually he said, you know, I got to pull these things out. They're not producing enough. I talked to guys like Joel Peterson, Paul Draper, Jerry Sepps, you know, about it. And they, at the time, Joel and Jerry we're very committed to 100% sin. And I go, well, this is what we're doing in the Marasoli Vineyard, and it's what's been going on forever. So virtually all the old vineyards we got, they're blended. I really look at it, it's kind of what Uncle Louie was doing back in the old country. And so when they came over here, because Napa and Sonoma uh, settled by a lot of northern Italians. So they brought this budwood, the Marasoli Vineyard, is Valdigui, Grand Noir, Alicante Boucher, Syrah, Petit Syrah, Carignan, Muscat de Hamburg, and Black Empress. But about 87, 88% Zinfandel by vine count. That's the best I can do on it. But so they're all in there for different reasons. So I, I kind of look at it. The old Italians never planted a vineyard. They always planted a wine. And where we've gotten totally away from that, although I'm starting to see more and more blends coming, hopefully people will start reblending these things again in the vineyard. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the library vineyard or Hain vineyard, and they're interplanted with a lot of different grape varieties or Oak right. Hill Farmhouse. And yeah, they're getting less and less because Cabernet is now about 12,000 a ton and Zinfandel is about five. So when you start looking at the growers are just going, hey, what am I crazy? And it's a great place to grow Cabernet. There's no doubt about it. But it's also a great place to grow Zinfandel and Petit Syrah in these blends. Well, that happened in Hain, right? Like part right. of it was replanted. Right. So we were getting um, a section in the old block, and Larry Turley and Phelps were also. And then Phelps, they dropped out, and then Larry picked up a lot of it. And then they sold part of the, the Hain block, one of the brother, Audie Hain's brother. 
So I got down to about three tons a year. And finally, I just, you know, I called Larry up and I go, hey, do you want this block? And he goes, oh, yeah, we'll take that block. And so I just, I walked away from the vineyard. We were making some other petite Syrahs at the time, so I really didn't need it. Uh, and it wasn't cheap, but it was a great, great vineyard. Uh, there was an old story. I got stuck doing a seminar on petite Syrah. And, uh, you know, the old thing of you get volunteered for something if you're out of town. So I call Audie Hain up and I go, Audie, um, I'm doing this little seminar on Batitza Ron. He starts laughing. And I go, what's the funny? He goes, I heard. And I said, well, I want to talk to you about Batitza Ra. He said, you know, Ray, you got to talk to one of the old guys. I'm only 78 years old. And I said, well, who do I talk to? He goes, well, then talk to Lori Wood because he's been taking my Budwood at night for years. So there's a lot of the Hain Budwood spread around the valley. So I call Lori up, and he had heard the story already, and so he's snickering, and he goes, Ray, you know, you got to talk to one of the old guys. He goes, I'm only 84. I go, Jesus Christ, who, who's left who's an old guy? He said, well, you need to talk to old man Nervoni. And I said, okay, what's his phone number? He goes, he won't answer. And I go, oh, well, what do I do? He said, I'll call him. I'll call you back. So he calls me back, and he goes, he's willing to talk to you. And he goes, but he's pretty crusty. So he was 92 at the time, it turns out. So I call him back and I said, Mr. Navoni, he goes, I know who you are. And I said, well, I'd like to talk to you about Petit Sarai. He goes, you mean pets? And I go, yeah, pets. He said, I can do it tomorrow at 2.30, bring two bottles of pets. So I show up at his house at 2.30 with two bottles of Petit Sarai, aka pets. And uh, he goes, well, open one. So I opened it up and I said, well, you know, I'd like to hear your history on it. He goes, all right. And this guy whistles through a bottle of wine, maybe an hour or something like that. And so I'm, I'm saying to him, well, what about the story? I'd really like to get the story out of it before you get too far gone. And he goes, well, Frank Navoni, my uncle, he and his buddy, uh, he, and he stops, he goes, 1904, 1905, phylloxera, all the vines in Napa Valley were dead. He said, in 1906, these guys took a buckboard to Vallejo. From there, they took a ferry into San Francisco, no Golden Gate Bridge, no Bay Bridge at the time, and they got on a clipper ship. So they took a clipper ship to France, went down into France, and found, I guess, the vineyard that Derif had used when he butted over. And I always butcher the name, the father of Petit Sarah being Sarah, the mother being Prolozin? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's something like that. The spelling-wise, it looks like that to me. So they had to wait until harvest was over. Then they had to wait for frost. And at that time, they got budwood and came back. So they returned in 1908, and the Hain Vineyard was the first Petitza Ra Vineyard replanted after Phylloxera. So now it's in a lot of different places. I think Randy thinks that some of his Petite um, Park Muscadine was part of the Hain, and there was another clone in there also because they looked totally different. And so now we still buy from uh, Chavez Leeds, Batitza Ra, that's from the Hain clone also. So it's like finding these things, and all these wines, all the Marasoli for sure, and a lot of the other Napa Valley wines all went to the co op as mixed black. And that's how we came up with the name Nero Misto. That and Brian Larkin, he also threw a tag in there on that one. There's a real romance 
to that, you know, simple, earthy, fruity wine. So when you set up your own business and you started looking at the game plan, what was the idea and what was coming through? Well, you know, we started looking at it. We are in Napa Valley and you have to make Cabernet. I was at a, a luncheon and Michael Martini was there. And he brought one of the first Merlots released in California as a Merlot varietal. And I think it was 86, 88, or 87, 88, something like that. There were no Merlot. There was no Petit Verdot. There was no Cab Franc. There was no Malbec. So in the heavy vintages, tannic vintages, the old guys would blend Zinfandel in. In the lighter vintages, they would blend Petit Syrah in to try to raise the tannin, the color, and stuff like that. But, you know, or that they just made plain cab because all those other varieties that we have access to now, they weren't there at the time. So, yeah, so we did that. I'm a big fan of Petit Verdot and cab. I also like a little cab franc in there if I can afford it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of blending. You know, I look for complexity and how do we make that work? In 97, we finally bought a winery. I was one of the original roving garistas. We made our wine in a bunch of different places, and I was trucking wine in an old pickup truck around. But we looked at it, and we said, we have to make Cabernet. And Gary Marasoli was very strong in pushing me to buy Cabernet. He said, you got to do it. So we started doing that. And then again, I started finding some of these growers that I had worked with at Whitehall Lane and saying, you got any of this available? And they go, yeah, we'll sell you a little bit of this. So we started thinking about things. I had a woman plant a vineyard for me and it was planted in, I think it was 92. And it was mostly Grenache, Syrah, some Avedro, and a little bit of Cinso in it. So in 94, we did our first Rhone blend. Uh, I don't know what the hell I did with this blend, but all the way through fermentation, this thing wouldn't turn color. It was the color, I would say, of strawberry yoo I don't think young people understand that anymore. So I call up our lab, ETS, and I said, Gordon, I got this wine, and it won't, it won't come to color. And he goes, well, go get a bottle and bring it up, and we'll take a peek at it. So I took a bottle out of the trough and set it on a ladder and came back, and it started turning jet black. And, I'm, you know, I had never seen anything like this, not that I'd been around that long, but I had never seen anything. I talked to all my buddies, and they go, well, you must have got some bad bud one. I said, it's from you. So anyway, the wine turned out to be, and I kid you not, a ringer for 91 Ogier. And I turned on some friends of mine to it. I turned on Ogier himself. And he goes, my God, he goes, that tastes like our wine. And I've never been able to do it since. So I really had the Rhone bug. So we played around with Syrah, Grenache. Uh, we started buying some Grenache from the Hudson Vineyard, which I really liked. Grenache is a tough sale. Um, it's unfortunate. And, I, and Syrah being the same way. We quit making Syrah. We're coming back with it. Not a lot, but a little bit of it. Uh, we wanted to do ours a little differently. So we started co-fermenting Viognier. And then we had a problem where the growers didn't want to hang their Viognier out so long. So one night I'm wide awake worrying about paying the bank. And I come up with an idea. Let's freeze it. So we'd go out and destem it, 
put it in five-gallon buckets and take it to the ice house. And uh, she goes, you can bring it in here, but you got to wait till all the corn dogs and the hamburgers are out for the local fairs. I don't have room for you until after that. So what we would do is we would crush our Rhone varieties, and we do it in open bins, punched down by hand. I'd go down to the ice house, and we'd throw two five-gallon frozen plugs of skins in it. So we got the color stabilization, we got a little aromatic, and we got to cool down the fruit a little bit, and it really worked out well. With the Viognier, the reason that you chilled it is because the Viognier ripens before, and you wanted the grapes to be okay so that you could add them in to do a co-ferment at the same time when the red grapes were ready. And then it's interesting what you said there, and I've heard that before, but to me it's always a surprise, which is that when you add white grapes to a red grape, you actually stabilize and get a deeper color in the red grape, which is the opposite of what you'd think. You know, I don't know if it's exactly you get a deeper color or you stabilize the pigment. So there's two schools on that. Michael Havens once told me he thinks it's more about stabilizing the pigment. Um, in Coroti, they do that. I don't think they do the frozen thing, but, you know, they're fighting for sugar. So where... Their Syrah may be 21, 22. Their Viognier may be 24, 25. So, you know, it's just something that we, we said, well, here's a way to do it. Because we were picking Viognier at 27, 28. And it didn't have the structure that we really wanted. So this thing came about and we could start doing it. By lowering the temperature of the overall musk as the grapes are frozen, you probably extended the fermentation time. Yeah. Like it went a little longer. Right. We would never inoculate, you know, for about three or four days. Uh, we had a professor up from UC Berkeley, and he said, hey, I'd like to do some experiments with your must. I said, well, what's this going to take? And he said, just a vial every day. And he said we came through with four different yeasts going native. And he said, some of these yeasts are so sensitive to alcohol, they can barely take 1% alcohol. So at that point, once we got through that, and we said, okay, it's time to put something in here. And we'd add some yeast at that time. Again, at a small amount. We didn't add a lot. You know, we just kind of wanted everything that could go on. I mean, I'm looking for complexity from yeast at the time instead of just finishing this thing and getting it in a barrel. So we would get good 15, 16-day fermentations from being in open bins. And so with the Grenache, we wanted to take it a little further. So we started getting canes from the year before. So Lee, would his crew would pick up a bunch, and they'd bring us a bundle of canes. And I would trim them. And then what I did, I put them in, on cookie sheets in the oven overnight at 200 degrees, put them up in the attic, and let them sit there until harvest time. And then I wrapped them in cheesecloth and made garnies out of them. So we sank these things into the fermenters. And what we got is this really kind of rustic earthiness to it. I can't say it was like Tawar-driven, you know, Chateauneuf de Pop, but it had this real earthy component. Was that a one-off or is that something you tried many times? Uh, Well, we just gave it a shot and went for it. And we liked it. You know, we certainly tasted the other vintages that we did. We tried it with a few other wines. It wasn't really what we wanted. I mean, we'll do a little whole cluster, but the stems, it's pretty serious. I mean, it brings some strong flavor to the wine. So we're playing now, uh, just because we can't stop doing nothing. Um, We're adding Marsan to Petit Syrah. 
and we're playing with that. But there, we don't worry about the color. So we're looking to try to see if we can get a little more gaminess with the Marsan out of the Batitsara. And so far, it's working. And then little by little, we were struggling with the pricing of the Grenache. So I was introduced to a guy, Najiar, up in Grass Valley. So we are still doing a Rhone blend. It's Grenache, Movedra, Syrah, Cunois, Cinso, and Carignan, and a white Rhone blend from a different section of the vineyard, which is Roussan, Marsan, Grenache Blanc, and Viognier. What do you see Marsan quality to Roussan quality in that part of the world? Well, you know, to me, the Roussan and the Viognier are the perfume. You know, the Marsan's that fat, oily weight to it that kind of gives you that big, creamy mouthfeel. And then the Grenache Blanc is very rose-scented, but it's got this acid that pulls the finish back together. I mean, we have this big mouthful of wine, and all of a sudden it starts to shape back in at the end with the the Grenache Blanc. And uh, it's really funny because he's growing this Grenache Blanc. He goes, I can't get this damn thing to turn red. And I said, well, Mike, maybe you got Grenache Blanc. So um, it's been something we really like. It's the problem with white Rhone blends, nobody knows of them. I once read where 5% of all the wine in the Rhone Valley are white. Everything else is red. I think they're amazing wines. I got to try some old ones. They seem to take a dive at about year three or four, and you figure out this wine's dead. And then about six, seven years later, you go, where'd this come from? And it's, it's been pretty amazing wine. I have one bottle left of our first vintage, the 03. And uh, the last time I drank a bottle, it was pretty good. Did that wine also do an up and down in the aging curve? or was Yes. It, what do you think contributes to that? You know, I, I don't know. It, it's like an oxidation. I find it very true to those styles. It's almost oxidized marzipan, but I really have no understanding why that happens. So it's interesting to me because you're a winery that's like dead in the middle of Napa Valley and you're still experimenting, which I f- don't necessarily always hear. Well, I've had my problems. We've had to throw a few things out <laughs> over the years, so it isn't all easy. But I mean, I, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. I mean, you know, I don't eat just steak and tuna. I, mean, I don't just make Cabernet and Chardonnay. And I love both of them, so I'm not knocking them in any way. It's just that there's more out there. But I imagine that the approach to Cabernet, the market probably demands a more straightforward approach, you know, because you make Cab too. Well, you know, we do, and we make a couple different styles. In 2000, I started thinking about it and saw the style of where wine was going, the bigger, bigger, and bigger, you know, darker and darker, more alcohol. And I said, you know, I want to do something different. So we had always been 21 months, 60% new French oak. 40% once used. And we continued that. But at 21 months, we would rack both lots together and go back into old barrels for nine more months. Basically, what I wanted to do, I wanted to continue shaping the wine, but no longer flavoring the wine by the barrel. So the breathing that goes on the barrel, we want that to continue. We just don't want any more oak flavor to it. And we took it and we watched it 2000, 2001, 2002, and three. And in 2004, we said, okay, we're going to go with it. We found that the wine needed more time. And so we now are a minimum of 18 months in bottle 
before we release it. So we're coming out with a four-year-old wine, which I think I kind of owe to my customers. Uh, We just wanted to do something that was more old-school Napa Valley than be caught up in the newest thing that's out there. I mean, there'll be another new thing down the road. And great wine was made in Napa Valley a long time ago. So it doesn't have to be the newest thing out there. And I think we get a little bit more of that real true Rutherford Bench sensation from it. I do kind of see you as a connection to the old school Napa in a way, although sometimes the weight is a little bit bigger in in, in the mouth, you know? Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, it goes back, they couldn't get sugar, you know, and they were growing Cabernet further down Valley than they probably should have been at that time. But yeah, some of our wines used to be in the low 13s. We shoot for that. Our newest Hain Vineyard, Batitsaraz, are under 14% alcohol and we're loving them. But we just don't always get that. I was working with Dean Sylvester and Larry Bradley with a guy from, it was an NBC affiliate, he's a weather guy. And our deal was what makes a great vintage. And this was 07, and we're talking to go, this has got all the marks of one of the great, great vintages as long as we don't get a heat wave. Sure as hell we get a heat wave. And one's not enough, we get two. So everybody's running where we thought we were going to get this real slow ripening that everything started moving real fast. So it's like getting that perfect vintage doesn't happen that often. I feel like Zinfandel, which is a great variety you often work with, can really run like that. Oh, you know, the thing with Zinfandel is you can have a hard pink berry, a softer pink berry, pretty hard red berry, soft red berry, a raisin, and it's trying to figure out all those different things. I mean, I always sample the vineyard. And when I walk to a vine, I turn my head away. I'll turn my head to the right and use my left hand to pick grapes, pick from the bottom of the cluster, the back of the cluster, the front, the top. But when you really get close, you got to start bringing clusters in. And you got to start bringing these clusters in and see what they swell up to. Because um, a raisin could be 60% sugar. They're good for the Zinfandel, but you got to know how many are in there. And so you have to pick accordingly. Have you seen techniques that were popular when you first came to Napa Valley and then maybe got less popular, get popular again? Like, have you seen? uh, Yeah, I think uh, Lee's contact on white wine. You know, we used to uh, destem into a tank and let it sit there and then, you know, rack it out a day or so later and then put it through fermentation. Well, now it's back to all being, you know, direct pressed right into the barrel the next morning. So I think that's a big one that's changed, and it's still changing. There's some young guys doing some really interesting things with oxidation. Um, time will tell. So working with a lot of different vineyard sources, I mean, what stands out to you when you search for a vineyard source that's something you want to work with? I think it's the grower a lot to see his commitment to it. I mean, we have a lot of growers in the valley now that they live here part-time. You know, and they're nice guys, so I'm not knocking them that way. But the commitment isn't there. I mean, the old guys were committed because that was their life. You know, they get paid once a year. That's all they got. So I think there was stronger commitment from the growers in the older days. You know, I'm a farmer, and I understand that thing of when you got to make your money, when you got to work and everything like that. It's don't call me up and say, well, 
I'm busy today going to the opera. Can we pick tomorrow? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of that that's changed in the Valley. And I, you know, all change is not bad. But, you know, that's where we just try to look at it. We look, who's the guy that's really paying attention in the vineyard? And how do we work together? Again, being a farmer, I get it. And I'm pretty easy to work with, but I certainly know what I want and expect to get it. But so, you know, we just go that way. What about your case production? Has that changed a lot over the years? Yeah, we got big for a while, and somehow I made a, a lucky move, and I started just before the recession. I started unloading some vineyards. So we're about 8,500 cases total. And I think that's where we want to stay. I think that's a good number for us. Uh, You know, as with everybody else, we're trying to get more direct sales because the consolidation with all the distributors, it's just making a nightmare out there. Um, You know, as a little guy, can the distributor pay their bills? Do they have trucking? You know, the big guy is, do I get lost? And so those are the real problems with the distribution business. There's a lot of problems. But, you know, how long will the three-tier system really be the way that it is? I don't know. We built our business on three-tier, and I would like to keep three-tier, but I would like to keep more direct back home. You know, it's a money thing. We make a lot more money if we can sell it direct. Um, It's opening up. You know, interstate shipping has opened up a huge amount so all that stuff is changing. I mean, we're, we're just seeing more educated buyers coming in. We see a lot of people who just want the most expensive, the highest rated wine. Well, someday they'll figure that out. Um, there's so much of, you know, evolving in this business. And I look back at it and my quote always was, these are the golden days. And it still is. So it's still really fun uh, we're becoming a Cabernet Valley, but I'm still having a good time doing it. I mean, it must be really kind of amazing to have come in when you did, you know, 83, 84 kind of era, and then see all the changes. Oh, It's a bit a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, I worked with this other guy. He was our neighbor at Whitehall Lane, Ray Rossi. And we actually, we made a wine nickname for him, Ray Rossi's Red. And it was a blend. He had Valdegui back there, which I loved his Valdegui. You know, he was here as a kid. You know, they talked about buffalo. You know, the valley was mostly almonds, walnuts, apricots, plums, dairy farms, and how all that changed. And a lot of the big change, I believe, was 65 with overhead irrigation. So they could grow grapes in a lot bigger part of the valley. But yeah, I used to get to listen to him tell stories, and I should have wrote them all down or taped them. Because he was, he was worth the price of a mission. He was a crusty old guy, and he'd been doing it for a long time. A long time. But I feel like if you'd started your business 10 years later, you might not have been able to start your business. Oh, we wouldn't have even been close. I think as far as desire, winemaking, you know, stuff like that, yes, you can still do it. But you can't do it with a little bit of money. Now it's a lot of money. We basically moved to California. We had $5,000. And $5,083 was not a lot of money, but it wasn't poverty either. Today, I don't, I don't know what. If you tried to do a winery, you're probably $100,000 to $300,000 in permits, legal fees, and everything like that. So it's kind of running it out. And what we're getting is we tease. We call them zippies. 
So they have a zip code, but they don't have any mortar. And they're all great guys, and I love them. And they're making some great wine, some of these guys. But it doesn't add up to build a winery anymore. It's just too expensive. I mean, I'm seeing vineyard land in some places, $500,000 an acre. And when I bought our winery, vineyard land had just gone to 30000 an acre. And the banker was there seeing what we're doing because we borrowed money to build a winery and everything. And he goes, yeah, he said in seven years, it'll be 90000 Sure as hell, it was. And so it just keeps going. It's going up and up. But I mean, I think it's still cheaper than Bordeaux and Burgundy. How does it really work? I don't know. I mean, how much further can it go? I'm very fortunate. Um, my son just came to work for me, and it's great. And he had no intention until his last semester. He had a free period, so he took a wine appreciation class. And he goes, you know, Dad, I want to do this. Finally. So, yeah, I mean, things like that. I mean, the Valley's changed. But, it, you know, New York City's changed. Everything's changed. Where I grew up in the farmlands of uh, around Newton, New Jersey, it's changed. I think we'll see a lot more change of what's coming this way. I don't think we'll see a lot more private buyers. I think we're going to see more corporation buyers, you know, pretty much what Bordeaux has become. I think it's inevitable. Art Finkelstein told me this back in 1986. He said, this is what's going to happen in the Valley. And, you know, he'd be rolling over in his grave if he saw the price of land these days. But even when his was sold, it was like a big price. I think it was like $4 For the million. Time, it was $4.2 million, yeah. Pretty serious number back in the 88, I think. You know, there's a great old story, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this. The day before Whitehall Lane was going to go through, Art Finkelstein was really getting buyer's remorse. And a friend of his was there at the time, and he worked for some big money fund. And he said, don't worry, Art, in five years you can buy it back on 50 cents on the dollar. And Leonardini bought it for 50 cents on the dollar. Because he sold it to one firm, and then that sold. Yeah, that firm then the sold big it. recession happened in Japan, and then they sold it. But that that was just the way that it went. I mean, is there going to be another bust in the business? You know, I don't know. I mean, we always look at it. Prices are getting so high. When's the point where you go, hey, I can't buy it anymore? The big Cabernets in Napa Valley, to me, they're out of reach. You know, this is a long-term business. Is it going to hold up for my son? Is it going to hold up for his son? And that's one of my biggest fears that, you know, we're going to kill the golden goose. That must be a conversation you have with your son a lot because you are actually passing it on, which a lot of people don't. They sell. Well, you know, if someone comes along and offers me a ton of money, what am I going to say? But I'd only start again. You know, this is what I like to do. You know, what I'm really looking for is making a good, honest living. And passing it on generation to generation. So what do you tell them when you tell them what's important? Save your money. Yeah. No, <laughs> I tell them, you know, what's important is consistency. And we've been very fortunate. We buy good grapes and we're consistent. And I said, you have to stay consistent. In the long run, I mean, I always begrudgingly joke, we're the best kept secret in Napa Valley. And, you know, we want to kind of get rid of some of that. But I said, you know, we need to make this thing profitable if we're going to stay doing it. it it's, it's not just a job. It's, it's keeping a business running. I mean, we see so many businesses, all kinds of business, restaurants, you name it, going under. And it's not easy. 
And the recession really took a bite out of the business for all the smaller guys. But I feel like interstate shipping also kind of came at the same time, which opened up a whole different right. kind of business. Model. That's been the savior for the wine, the small wineries, interstate shipping. And it makes sense. I can go to Florida and buy oranges. So why can't I ship wine to Florida? So, you know, it's, it's all prohibition stuff that needs to be straightened out. And thankfully, they're doing it. If you were looking back, are there things you would have done differently over the course of the years? You know, I don't know how much I would have changed. Maybe tried to buy something a little earlier, but we didn't have a lot of money. And I used to, every year, I would tell my my ex-wife presently, my wife, and I said, this year we're going to make money. And after about 10 years, she goes, you tell me one more time, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) We're not making any money on this business. But, you know, we have a great life. And that's what it's really about when you really get down to it is, you take care of your family. You enjoy what you do. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could have started a little earlier. I wish I could have bought more vineyard, but I'm glad I don't have one vineyard in one location and make all my wine from that because it'd be boring. You know, it's fun to work with these different vineyards. I think one year we had 57 different blocks that I pulled from. And I go out and I eat grapes from about 6 o'clock till about 10 o'clock. And you just kind of get a feel for the vineyard. And you're out there, and you're looking at this thing, and you're going, okay. Truthfully, in the Marasoli Vineyard, there's one black muscat vine. If I taste it, I know when the vineyard's ready. Oh, that's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, from doing this, sampling this for so many years, and, you know, you go through it, and you just start to get an idea of, where the Valdigui, what the Grand Noir are bringing, what the Petit Syrah, the Alicante. And then this old vine there is just go, yeah, it's ready. The vineyard's ready. So, you know, it's just practice. You started a new project recently, the Purple Heart Wines. Uh, the Mondavi family approached me, and I believe they approached a few other winemakers, and they gave us everything, you know, barrel sample, and they said, make a wine. So I made a wine for him. I blended up a wine for him, and they hired me on for this. And, uh, you know, I'm delighted to do it because I'm a Vietnam veteran. Uh, thank God I didn't get a Purple Heart. So that's uh, Peter Mandavi from Charles Krug. Yes. They came to me on this, and I said, you know, I would be delighted. So we started playing around with it, and uh, they're really nice people. Uh, Peter Mandavi Sr. was just a great old guy. You know, I'm sure he was tough on his kids, as old Italian guys were. But, you know, I just took a liking. I'm more interested in getting recognition for the people with the Purple Hearts, not to say thank you, but to help financially. And so that's where I'm looking at doing this from. And we need to get more money to our veterans. We need more help for them. I think it's always been easier to send people to war than take care of them when they're home. What was your approach to the winemaking for that wine? Well, they wanted to do it as a Merlot. So I, I tasted a lot of wine. There's a little bit of Zen in it. There's some Cab Franc in it, some Cabernet in it. So we're playing around. And, you know, where, where I make wine, it, it's, I try to put flavor in every zone on your palate. You know, great entry is important. You know, the grapefruit character the finish is extremely important. And then not having a hole in the middle of the wine, 
So when I blend and I did this thing, that's what I'm looking for, to make a really good, solid wine that people drink and they think about what happened. You know, we pretty much all have a, a friend, a cousin, a son, a daughter who's been in a war, and this is something to remember that. And that's how I want to see it done. Ray Corson's been doing it the way he'd like to see it done at Elise, Jacob Franklin, and now the new Purple Heart label that he's also working with. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Ray Corson of Elise, Jacob Franklin, and Purple Heart. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. And you work with Black Sears Vineyard early in, right? Right. I Well... As the Park Muscadine Vineyard was going down and being planted to Cabernet, I started getting some stuff out of the Black Sears Vineyard. And we used that, I believe, through 11, 2011. Great vineyard. Definitely Howl Mountain. It has that kind of peppery, wild gaminess to it. We always used to tease there was a weed growing in that vineyard that we just called thistleweed. And we said that's where the pepper comes from. I think it's a lot more than that.